Tonight we return to our study in the gospel according to Mark, where we have been for several Sundays now. Last Sunday, Drew Hunter led us in a very solid exposition of Matthew 10, a passage with a lot of relevance for missions and witnessing and testifying and sending and going forth and suffering. And tonight, as we turn to Mark chapter 4, in God's providence, we come to a passage which also has much, has much relevance for, for missions, for witnessing, for the kingdom of Christ entering this world and spreading in this world. Look with me, if you will, to Mark 4, verse 21 to 34. Here we have four short parables related to the kingdom of God, which has come in Christ. As we read this, let's not forget that giant tapestry with only the few highlights that I mentioned and hundreds more that could be mentioned or perhaps thought of in your mind tonight as we read about the kingdom of God in Mark 4. In verse 21, he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even that he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scattered seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Well, I said these are parables about the kingdom of God that has come in Christ. And that theme, the presence of the kingdom, as I said, was established very early on in Mark. From the very first few verses when Mark introduced the beginning of the gospel, he was quoting from the prophets there, quoting alluding at least to the prophets and their announcement of a kingdom that was to come in a Messiah that would come with it. We see explicit reference to it in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, this passage we're looking at tonight continues with those same themes that we saw well, 10 days ago or so, when Trent preached to us on the parable of the seed and the four soils, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, contained one big parable and an explanation of that parable of four soils, 
Some seed, remember, fell on the path, the way, the road. And Satan came and took that seed of the word away. Nothing happened. Some seed fell on rocky ground. And these people hear the word. They receive it with joy. But when tribulation and persecution spring up, well, they leave it alone. Some seed fell on the thorny ground. It grew up, but then was choked with the worries of this world. Worries about things and a desire for riches choked out the seed. But some, some fell on good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. So four Soils. One big parable a couple weeks ago, 10 days or so. Now tonight, four short parables related to hearing and the presence of the kingdom. The first parable is the parable of the lamp in verse 21. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? The lamp is the kingdom of God. The lamp is the kingdom of God, or it may be the bringer of the kingdom of God, who is Jesus. It isn't quite clear, and it really doesn't matter. In some ways, the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom of God through the Messiah are one. They, or it, whatever you want to call it, this new thing, is like a lamp. It's like a lamp coming you can't see that in the English translations, but in the Greek, there's this emphasis about the lamp coming. Verse 21, does the lamp come in order to be put under a basket or under a bed? Lamps don't come, they're brought. Unless the lamp is this thing or this one, this person. It's repeated again, the word come. Does it come? Does it not come to be put on a stand? In other words, it hasn't come to be put under a bed. It has come to be put on a stand. Well, it seems like it's a no-brainer anyway. It seems like the kingdom and its Christ shouldn't be hidden, but instead should be seen. Because lamps don't go under baskets or under beds. They aren't hidden. They're not to be hidden. But I think Mark is being a little more clever than that here. I think he's being a little more sneaky. You see in the next verse, verse 22... Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. That sounds more purposeful. Nor is anything secret except to come to the light. And earlier in the chapter, in verse 11, he explained parables like this. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive. You see these themes tumbling around? Things hidden, seeing, what's secret, what's going to be manifest, that language continues into our passage tonight. And the point is this, that the kingdom is hidden to those who can't see it, to those who refuse to hear it. Especially in the time of Mark 4, when it was happening live, the kingdom was hidden. It was heard, but it wasn't heard. It was seen but it wasn't really seen. Some didn't see or hear a thing. Whatever was happening around them in and through Jesus, it bounced right off them. They had no interest and no care. Others saw the signs of the kingdom that were going on around Jesus, the miracles, but they didn't see the kingdom. 
And they didn't see the Christ. They saw the miracles. They saw the power. And they were curious. The disciples heard and saw something more, but they can't yet quite put their finger on it. They don't get it yet. They have questions. And that's what caused Jesus in the last section to explain the parable, the four soils, to them. The crowd went away after Jesus told the story. And then the disciples said, what was that? Tell us more about that. What, what, what was that all about anyway? So in the live time of Mark 4, as Jesus is telling these parables to a live audience, the kingdom is hidden. But it is going to be made manifest. It's a secret that is coming to light as Jesus is speaking this. For a time, the kingdom was a lamp that was put under a basket. It was cloaked. And one day, especially after the cross and resurrection, it will be put on a stand for all to see. And Jesus' followers, followers will have to continue to take this thing that is hidden from plain sight and put it on the stand for all to see. Do you hear this? Well, verse 23 says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And you say, well, I've got ears. Why does he say that? Anyone who has ears can hear, right? Not all, but, but shouldn't that be the case? If it's a working ear, shouldn't you hear? Yeah, but there's hearing and then there's hearing. And some think they hear, but they don't hear. Some hear, but they don't hear. They're like the idols who have ears, but don't hear. Eyes, and yet don't see. Secondly, there's the parable of the measure. It's not technically a parable. It's an analogy or illustration, but Jesus has given a string of these things. They all get introduced, and he said to them. So this one, verse 24, he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I know that's rather cryptic, to our hearing anyway, but essentially Jesus was saying, those who have, in other words, those who hear, they will get more. They will hear more. Those who don't get it and want to keep not getting it, they will actually get less apart from intervening grace. As time goes on, they will actually hear less apart from intervening grace. And the point of this parable is that, that personal responsibility, you see in verse 24, to pay attention to what you hear. Put to use whatever measure of hearing and understanding that has been given to you. Now, your hearing and your understanding is not solely dependent on your human effort. That seems to be implied even here in this passage by the simple fact that some just mysteriously have. Some have. If they keep listening, more will be given to them. So it's not solely dependent on your human effort. God reveals this stuff. But neither can we be casual about what we hear, how we hear, and whether we receive it. We need to keep hearing, keep believing, keep receiving. Don't be casual in your listening to Jesus. These parables, including the big one we saw 10 days ago, 
They provide an explanation for the various responses to Jesus that will take place in the rest of Mark's gospel account. We'll see this unfold again and again and again. You'll have categories for these people. You'll go, oh yeah, Jesus said you shouldn't do that, and that's exactly what you're doing. He said, I know you're kind, you're, you're this kind, you're those who are excited about the message, but then don't want that kind of message or messenger. Jesus taught in parables for this very reason. Parables are taught by Jesus because they bring some clarity to what kind of listener he's dealing with. For us, the parables bring some kind of clarity to the listeners we see and read about in the story. Some will say, as they hear and see Jesus, well, that's weird. Some will say, hmm, that's interesting, a story, a storyteller. <laughs> I like stories. I might see you tomorrow. I might come by. Some, like the disciples here in the same chapter, will say, now what, what was that you said? Can you clarify that again? What, what did you mean? Tell us more. Some will keep asking and keep hearing and keep thinking, and they will follow him even into the unknown. And some will start to see the subversive, upside-down nature of the kingdom and the king. They'll start to see the upside-down nature of the king and his kingdom. Or maybe, as others have put it, it's the right-side-up kingdom in an upside-down world. It's our world that's upside-down, not him. But that kingdom and that Messiah about which they will be told and repeatedly told and progressively be told in the following chapters will not be one according to their present assumptions or any human wisdom. We've already seen some of this in Mark already, haven't we? This is no good teacher. This is no good worker. This is no compassionate guy. I mean, this is the one in chapter 1, verse 11, where a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. That's not just a good teacher, then, is it? This is the one on whom the spirit, like a dove, descended. This is the one who approached a demon, and the demon said, Have you come to destroy us? This is the one who had a man come to him who was paralyzed. His friends brought him, and, and Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven. And his enemies rightly, rightly protested. Only God can say, Your sins are forgiven. This is the one who called himself the bridegroom and said, my disciples can't fast when I'm around because I'm the bridegroom and no one fasts on their honeymoon. But the days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away. What's this? You'll be taken away? Hmm. This is the one in chapter 3 who heals a man with a withered hand and it makes no sense. The Pharisees, his own religious leaders, went out and held counsel with, with political godless people about how to destroy him. 
We'll see next Sunday that the disciples are in a boat with Jesus during a storm and they fear for their very lives and Jesus is sleeping on a pillow in the middle of this storm. And when he calms the wind and waves, the disciples were even more afraid. And they say, who then is this that the winds and the sea obey him? We'll also see in the weeks and months to come that there are three main predictions in the middle of this book. You might want to turn there. Just note these. These are central and centrally important to the book of Mark. Jesus gives three predictions, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, predictions of his coming cross, burial, and resurrection. Mark places these at the center of his book. He puts them close together. They each follow a similar pattern of an explicit statement from Jesus and a rather poor response from his disciples. All this points to the centrality of the cross, to the certain kind of kingdom that's in their midst and a certain kind of king that's coming in his there. So Mark 8.29, after Peter confesses, you are the Christ. That's right. That's good. Well, then Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. This is what's coming. Chapter 9, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Chapter 10, verse 32. He began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. It's getting more specific now. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Maybe the disciples are finally getting it here, right? He said it three times. Except what comes right after this is James and John say, Hey, Jesus, we want to ask you for something, and we want you to say yes. He says, I don't know. What is it? Tell me. Well, we want to sit at your left hand and your right hand when you enter your kingdom. Wow. They didn't get it, did they? So back to chapter 4. According to verses 24 and 25, there are some who have, and they will get more. And actually, James and John are part of that, aren't they, in the long run? So is Peter. And yet there are those who don't have, don't get it, and they will get less in the end. They will see less. So don't be casual about what you hear. Pay attention to what you hear from Jesus, about what he says of himself and his mission and what it means to follow him. The third parable, we could call it the seed, the sower, and the harvest. The parable of the seed, the sower, and the harvest in verses 26 through 29. We see here that the seed is growing secretly and mysteriously. You see verse 26, he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed in the ground. 
He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. This tells us that the kingdom is unseen for one. It's like seed. It's like seed that's either on the ground or in the ground. Even when it's on the ground, you don't see it from far away. No one goes, look, hark, seed. No, no one does that, right? It's unseen. It's unseen. But the kingdom is sure. It's unseen and sure. Those things don't usually go together. They do with the kingdom of God. It will sprout and grow. But the kingdom is mysterious. It's mysterious. This farmer knows not how it grows. The only thing he does know is that it doesn't grow by him, by his doing. He sleeps and rises night and day. Seed is scattered. He waits. He sleeps. He gets up. He does stuff, but not this. He doesn't make the seed grow. In fact, the power to grow is in the seed itself, not in the farmer. Martin Luther was asked how the Protestant Reformation in Europe came about. How did you architect this thing, Martin? And he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly did its work. I did nothing. The word did everything. You see, in verse 28, it says, The earth produces by itself. In the Greek, it's automata, where we get automatically, right? The earth produces this automatically. It just happens. And so the kingdom is sure, and the kingdom is mysterious, but we also see the kingdom is growing in stages. You see verse 28, the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. There's a progression there, isn't there? We all know that as we see something grow. But notice there's a progression explicitly stated. It's a first, then, then kind of progression. It reminds us that the kingdom doesn't just come in stages, but specific, planned, in necessary stages. We know, we just read about chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, these predictions of the cross and resurrection. The kingdom doesn't come without the cross. The kingdom doesn't come without the resurrection. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain. It comes in stages. It's still coming in stages. But the kingdom is growing unto a harvest. Verse 29, when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. It isn't clear whether this is a harvest that will happen in the age of the apostles or the age of the church and whether, whether this is a harvest that means just simply people coming to faith in Jesus, an Acts 2 moment or, or an Aquila and Priscilla moment. But what we do know is that this harvest is Coming. It could be the end of the age harvest, but it is coming. 
That's the parable of the seed, the sower, and the harvest. The seed is growing, but it's unseen at first, and yet its growth is sure. It's mysterious, comes in stages, and it's unto a harvest. And then lastly, we see the parable of the mustard seed and the tree. The parable of the mustard seed and the tree in verses 30, and 30, 30 to 32. He says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? And what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. What do we see here? The kingdom, at first, is small. The kingdom is small. It's unclear at this point in Mark 4 whether the kingdom is any bigger than one guy, (laughs) Jesus. I mean, others around him are starting to enter in. The kingdom is, at first, small. But when the seed of the kingdom is sown... It becomes the largest of the garden plants. A mustard seed would bear a shrub that would grow up into somewhere the size of six to ten feet high. It says here tree, but, but really it's a shrub, and that's a darn big shrub, isn't it? It says it's the largest of the garden plants. I don't know differently. I suppose that's true. And it says that the kingdom's branches are reaching out as nests and shade for the whole world. For the whole world. You see in verse 32? It puts out large branches so the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You might say, okay, I'm reading that and I see nest and shade, but you stressed for the whole world. And why would you add that to the equation, Ryan? Well, because of Ezekiel 17, that's why. Over 600 years before Jesus spoke this in Mark 4, God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel of a day when he would plant a tree, quote, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. And if you think that's just talking about really all of the birds in the bird world, you're mistaken. Birds here are, of course, illustrations of people. It's actually not talking about one big tree, is it? It's talking about tree, a place of provision and protection and shade and and, and a place to nest. We should also think of Daniel 4. In Daniel 4, he had a vision of a tree, quote, The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. This is what Jesus is alluding to. This is what Jesus came to bring. A kingdom, small at first, but then 
the largest of the garden plants, eventually being nest and shade for the whole world, for every sort of bird, every sort of man and woman and child, for the whole earth. But in the live time of Mark 4, with those hearers and listeners around Jesus, this was just a promise and a person. It was just an announcement and someone there in the flesh. It was small in assuming. Yes, there were pockets of power. We saw already pockets of power of miracles and exorcism. But even these were grossly misunderstood or wrongly celebrated. And even after the cross and resurrection the message of the cross will still be considered silly to some and offensive to others. Let us not forget 1 Corinthians 1, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, namely the cross, to save those who believe. You see, Jews demand a sign and Greeks want wisdom, but we preach Christ on a cross. And that's a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. But to those, whether Jew or Gentile, who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He goes on, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what's low and despised in the world. He chose those things which are not to bring about those things which are so that no human may boast in the presence of God. It's because of Christ Jesus that you are in him who became for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me offer some closing applications from these four parables in Mark 4. The first is listen to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, listen to him, hear him, seek him, get him. Don't get him wrong. Don't be careless. Have the right Jesus and keep listening, keep receiving, keep appropriating. Secondly, praise him for the goodness he has revealed to you, especially if you're a Christian. In light of 1 Corinthians 1, in light of these parables in Mark 4, praise him that he has put that seed within your heart. And it, by its power, has germinated and borne life and fruit. It was not your doing. Thirdly, Christian, keep hearing. You keep receiving, keep believing. Do not grow dull in your hearing. Do not get used to this Jesus. Fourth, do your part in seeding for the kingdom, in farming with the gospel. Sow with patience. 
So like the farmer and sleep. <laughs> what a great picture. Sow and sleep. But keep sowing. You sow by speaking. We sow by sending. And some will sow by going. Fifth, don't judge things by mere appearances. Don't judge things by mere appearances. Don't these parables tell us that about the kingdom and its growth and its ways in this world? From one angle, we can think of these Mark 4 parables in their original context and then highlight the contrast with our own day, meaning that the presence and the characteristics of the kingdom are better known by us on this side of the cross than they were by those on the Mark 4 side of the cross. The mustard seed has grown up, and its branches right now are reaching to the nations. That's the, on the one hand. On the other hand, we should guard against triumphalism. We should not expect that things continually progress and never seem to decline. We should never think that the mission is almost done. We should never coast. We should never gloat on being on the right side of the giant oak tree of this world and look down on those who don't have it. We should remember all along that the gospel, until Jesus comes back, will still be opposed. We, Christians, will still be marginalized. And by every observation, it looks like we're headed in that direction in this country, not the other. Sometimes things of the church, things spiritual, things of the kingdom will feel small, quite hidden, unfruitful. We should expect that. Jesus told us in parables, this is its very nature. Sometimes it looks small. Sometimes it's hidden. It's always mysterious. Yes, it's sure, but it's mysterious. And so we shouldn't confuse the kingdom with the crowd. We shouldn't confuse the kingdom with largeness or with power or with glitz. We don't judge things by mere appearances. As Trent put it recently, the kingdom isn't like fireworks it's like farming, farming. You, you watch, you wait, that's it. James 5 says, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Wait for his return. And last application point, the most obvious, and the most essential. Never take your eyes off the epicenter of our hope and the epicenter of our message, the cross of Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection.